Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, a podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we're talking about solidarity and self-interest in Europe during the corona crisis. I'm very happy to welcome an all-star cast to discuss this topic with me. The heads of our national offices, Jana Puglierin from Berlin, Arturo Varvelli from Rome and Jose Ignacio Torreblanca from Madrid. Thank you all for joining. Jana, why don't we start with you? Because this week ECFR launched its Solidarity Tracker, which is an attempt to, to look at all of the different types of de facto solidarity which bind the European Union together. Why don't you tell us in a few sentences what that's for and what some of the interesting insights are? So we launched the European Solidarity Tracker, which is an interactive data visualization tool that basically collects and displays instances of pan-European solidarity throughout the corona crisis. So it illustrates how solidarity between the member states, but also from the EU institutions and also between civil society has been put into action, but also we cover the debate around it and how it was communicated. We collect data that is publicly available and we work with our 27 associate researchers. So we have someone in every European member state who did the research for us. This is very much an evolving tool. We will update it frequently and also add new data and new content. So we will work on data on China, which we will include shortly to show what the Chinese have actually done to help the Europeans in the crisis. And why did we want to do it? Because we felt that solidarity has become kind of an overused buzzword in the debate in the beginning, and that it was also very much instrumentalized at at several occasions. And we wanted to understand better what policymakers actually meant by it and how they used it and also actually how they instrumentalized it. For example, there was one moment when solidarity basically was equal to support for corona bonds. And uh, if you were in favor, you showed solidarity. And if you were against, so you didn't. And we wanted just to learn a bit more also how different the debate is in all the individual European member states. And what were the most interesting examples of solidarity that you found? Well, there were many on many levels. If you want to cheer you up a bit, there are beautiful stories about individual solidarity, about someone who developed a 3D printer protection mask that was then later produced all over Europe. Yeah, we saw that basically this impression that many Europeans had that the EU was irrelevant in the crisis or that the European level was irrelevant, that this is simply false. I mean, we don't say it was enough solidarity. You can always argue that more was needed, but you can't certainly say that there wasn't any kind of solidarity or that the European level was irrelevant. So this is one of our, I think, uh, major findings. But it's also interesting to see how, for example, in Hungary, how kind of the concept of solidarity was used to advance kind of the country's national interests. For example, masks were delivered to Hungarian uh, minorities in the neighboring countries, but not to the other citizens so that led Romanian media to call this an act of ethnic discrimination which it certainly was so it's just very impressive to see kind of the variety of things that have been happening but also what different heads of state and government meant when they talked about it. So Arturo you're sitting in Italy which was the hardest hit by the crisis but my impression from the outside is that Italians don't feel a kind of huge 
onslaught of solidarity from other European countries. One of the reasons why people were so critical about the European response to Corona is that they'd already felt abandoned with the refugee crisis and before that with the Euro crisis. How do you see this debate about solidarity from an Italian perspective? Yes, Mark, the concept of solidarity has suffered the shock in Italy in recent months. Since the crisis started, Italy had to face several challenges, among them a lack of coordination in medical supplies, the consequences of the absence of the EU common health policy, border closure with consequences on the circulation of health goods to Italy, but also the effect of interference in the information debate of great powers such as China and Russia. All these reasons fostered the perception that you had abandoned Italy, as you, as you say. Even if EU aid arrived later on, the lack of coordinated policy and the good communication strategy represent a sort of shortcoming in Europe's response. And this caused a great disillusionment towards the concept of EU solidarity. And EU solidarity cases had very little coverage in, in the Italian media almost monopolized by the China-Russia-Italy triangle and has been very poorly narrated at the eyes of Italians. Emotion play an important role in Italy in this specific crisis. So COVID-19 is the biggest Italian crisis since the end of the Second World War affected Italians in their very personal life. And all the surveys that have been made in March and April, in particular as the CFR Unlock project, are very worrying as they demonstrate a growing perception of hostility towards Europe in general. However, it's true that recent surveys have shown how much the EU Commission's next generation proposal, based mainly on the Franco-German initiative, is appreciated in Italy and also in the, in the public opinion. Probably public opinion is realizing that if Italy is saved in this difficult condition, it will be thanks to the European solidarity, or rather thanks to the adhesion to a supranational project such as the European Union is. And that is the interest of Italy. And also in the Alloc data, it's very clear that the majority of Italian is asking now more EU cooperation, more EU integration. So the Unlock projects are a big project on polling in different European countries. And in the next few weeks, we're going to be releasing a lot of data on how COVID has changed attitudes in different member states. But Nacho, you're sitting in Spain, which is another of the countries that's been badly affected by the crisis. Like Italy, it's a country which has traditionally had very, very strong support for the European Union. In many ways, Spain has been the perfect European citizen since it joined the European Union. How is the feeling in Madrid? Do people feel that they're getting much solidarity? Yeah, I mean, rather than, I would say, the lack of solidarity from other EU members, Spaniards saw what was going in Italy and, and uh, it was not exactly the case in Spain that, that supplies being held from other European member states at the border or that happened also uh, in the scramble for medical supplies from Turkey to China and everything. So rather than lack of solidarity with Spain experience was a fierce fight for everything 
from supplies to the very same truth about what was going on and, and what was the origin of the virus and so on. And, but I would say that solidarity, the experience in Spain is that it had happened at the beginning, mostly among Spaniards, mostly by committed individuals, by philanthropists, putting their networks in China logistic networks, especially in their firms at the disposal of the government and regional governments, and there were many donations, even from the Chinese community in Spain, which we later found that they were organized and staged, so they were not spontaneous and therefore they were solidarity, but for different purposes. But in the concrete case of Europe, I think at the beginning there was an anxiety when people used the frame or saw the frame of the previous crisis of North, South, Protestants, Catholics, frugal and spenders, you know, in coming in. And especially, I think it was very damaging in the case of the words of coming from the Netherlands and, and some of the public authorities in the Netherlands. But, uh, but it has not been felt in that sense as a lack of EU solidarity, but as individuals who were not empathic and were not understanding the situation and countries which were reluctant to come in. But I don't think the EU image as a whole has suffered. And again, in unlock, what we see is that whereas Spaniards are critical on Europe doing little and late, and this was at the beginning of the crisis, but they want the EU to do more and they will welcome the EU to do more. So we're talking about all this mythical data from the Unlock project. And unfortunately, um, it's not going to be released for a little bit longer. But one of the things which struck me a lot in that data is when we asked people to what extent they were willing to support financial burden sharing uh, as part of the recovery, that we found huge majorities in favour of that in all the countries that are likely to be net beneficiaries of burden sharing. But no majorities in any of the countries which were likely to have to pay, even in France, which has been leading the debate about uh, euro bonds and, and corona bonds and the recovery fund, only 47% supported financial burden sharing. And Denmark and Sweden and the other frugal countries, it was even lower. And that sort of leads me to a question about whether solidarity is a helpful term, because it's obviously something which is felt in its absence in Spain and Italy, as we heard from you, Nacho and Arturo, but it's quite a toxic term in a lot of Northern European countries because they hear solidarity and the, the kind of subliminal message is transfer union in many people's minds. Jana, do you think it's a good term to encourage Germans to contribute more to the European project? Actually, yes, I think so. Because, But I think we need to discuss how we define solidarity. So what didn't go down well in Germany was to link uh, the definition of solidarity, for example, to corona bonds only. So the Germans would always argue that they have shown a lot of solidarity throughout the crisis, especially in the beginning, medical solidarity, so that you cannot really strictly limit it to kind of the support of mutual debt in the European Union, although Germany has moved on that topic also than later. But I think that solidarity is not a noble concept and I think we shouldn't romanticize it. So I think it has very much to do with self-interest and I would see it more as a social insurance system in the European Union that in times of crisis you help each other, uh, you support each other mutually and if you are kind of at the receiving end in one crisis, maybe in the next crisis, you can help others. So I really think um, it has a lot to do with self-interest. But do you think that works when you've got such an asymmetrical sense of threats? I mean, I think most Germans feel that they've been fine for all the crises. They don't really ask for help from anyone else. So therefore, it does feel like a one-way street solidarity to a lot of German voters. 
So, but I think in the migration crisis, for example, Germany actually wanted to see more solidarity from other European countries taking more refugees. And so I think it is not really helpful to look only at one crisis and one uh, situation, but I think you really need to get the bigger picture. And also, I think that is where the debate needs to go, to link different crises and really show that uh, solidarity. It's, it's not always the same countries that receive it and not always the same countries that give it, but it can be really a mutual thing. But Arturo, I remember going to Italy in 2015, 2016, and people were saying then that when migration was was happening in Lampedusa and people were kind of desperate, it was seen as an Italian problem. And then when they came to Germany, then it was a kind of time for solidarity and it became a European crisis. Mark, I I agree with your reasoning. Uh, Solidarity can be a toxic term. It can be highly desired as a concept when you are the recipient, undesirable when you are the donor. So it would be better to talk about interest, maybe, making a broader and more inclusive reasoning. In this case, European integration should be perceived in the interest of those who participate. However, in some countries, speaking of national or self-interest is very difficult. And Italy, for me, is a clear example because Italy for a long time denied this concept. The national interest concept or idea had been linked for 20 years to the fascist interpretation, we know, mainly oriented to the ethnic concept of the nation. And in some way, also the concept of self-interest is toxic in Italy. So Italy avoided for a long time to face the question of a clear identification and definition of what national or self-interest is. But the time is gone because nationalists and populists are now using this concept instrumentally with an anti-European interpretation. But my question is, can Italy live without Europe in the name of recovering its popular sovereignty? a country that does not even spend 2% of its GDP on its defense, that it's not independent from the energy point of view, that does not have a permanent seat at the United Nations or a nuclear weapon, which depends for about 30% of the GDP from export, especially in the EU market. So this is quite obvious misunderstanding, in my view. And that deserves to be clarified, even to the public opinion, and to explain to the public opinion, probably, that is more helpful to use the revised concept of self-interest than the concept of solidarity. And what do you make, Nacho? How, I mean, all the things that Arturo said about Italy are pretty much true of Spain as well, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I felt uncomfortable and I think like many else at some point in the crisis when solidarity was a word that you were kind of throwing at others. You don't tell people they're not showing solidarity. I mean, there is kind of a contradiction in terms. I mean, you may be wanting to say some other thing. This is like when you say something that you have to be more spontaneous, you know, or when you ask someone, you know, do you think I am an insecure person? And solidarity, you know, the way we talk about solidarity shows that the only true meaning of this, which would maybe have validated those accusations, is when you do something without clearly any return. 
this is very difficult in the European context. Even this degree of solidarity that we are talking about these days can be seen as an expression of mutual interest to be together in a community of destiny. It can also be very practical as an investment in the future. When you see that someone is doing bad, you may invest in helping that person without getting nothing in return in the expectation that this person will help you in the future. So there are many meanings of solidarity, but I would say like the pure understanding, the moral understanding of solidarity is not something you know we can expect from individuals, but not from states. The question here then is why are states not being you know, solidarian with others? And then to try to, to work on that. And here is because it's the perception in many cases, what is behind this lack of solidarity is that you don't deserve your help or their help because you, know, you haven't been put in a position to deserve it because you've done something wrong. I remember Nick Whitney saying that this is when you are hiking or escalating the Himalaya and the last guy you know, was smoking. In some instances, it is that you don't want to be solidarian with someone because it is a moral reproach rather than the lack of morality of the one who's showing solidarity. But that's the argument which people make about Corona is, you know, definitely with the Euro crisis, that was the persistent argument that was made by the creditor countries. The debtor countries had lied and cheated their way into the Euro, well, at least Greece had in their minds, and that somehow what was happening was a sort of just reward for the um, economic mismanagement of previous years. But Corona is obviously not something that originated in Europe. To what extent do you think the dynamics are different from the financial crisis? I mean, I think they're different in the moral aspects, but not so much in the sense that we've seen the frugals, for example, being very worried of the fact that this time, precisely because the virus was not origin in, in the countries which are asking for help, will be used for these countries to get away with what they think is a lack of fiscal discipline and so forth and so on. So even if the crisis is totally different, I think it's been different truly and consequentially in Germany, this is what has made the difference. If it was maybe for the Netherlands, the Finns and the Dutch and the Austrians, it wouldn't have been different. What I really see that is absolutely different in this occasion is the understanding in Germany, both that the morals of these are different, but also the self-interest of this is, is that. So at the end, you know, how would you benefit from seeing the third and the fourth economy in the Eurozone sinking for two years, you know, in an internal market on, on which you heavily depend. So at the end, it comes to a very practical question is that, do you want to teach a lesson to someone at your own cost? And this is what hopefully at some point will bring, as Arturo and I was saying, the self-enlightened interest into the equation, which would kind of balance all these moral preoccupations or help do away with them. So, Jana, do you see this happening? Because I think one of the big struggles during the euro crisis is a lot of European academics, economists, and, you know, some politicians from the Green Party and the SPD were making the case for German solidarity on the basis of self-interest, explaining how much Germany's benefited from the single market and how the euro allowed Germany to be very competitive on the global stage because it kept the currency much more undervalued than it would have been if the Deutsche Mark had still been there, which was enormously beneficial for German interests. But somehow those arguments didn't seem to land in the court of public opinion during the euro crisis. Do you think that they're landing more now? 
I agree with Nacho. I think this time it actually did resonate with the people. And so that's what Angela Merkel said kind of after an initial phase. Yeah, because I think because politicians have constantly explained it over the years. And this is also due to the change debate we have in Germany about the EU. I mean, we had a big problem to talk about our own German interests in kind of the European Union. It was always European interests and it was always kind of really this romanticized concept of EU integration. But I think that has changed very much the debate over here over the years. People got more used to be told that this is very much in our interest, in their um, self-interest, in an economic interest, and that we benefit from the euro as a currency. So I think there is a shift in the debate. But this crisis really helped also to shift the debate even further in Germany, precisely because we are all in this together and there is nobody to blame. I mean, we have some people arguing that the Italians use this as an excuse now to push through the transfer union they always wanted but these voices were really silenced and i think for the german debate this crisis was actually quite helpful i mean that sounds cynical but i think that more people now uh, buy into the concept of both solidarity and self-interest so one last thing jana before we end the discussion you've just published this solidarity tracker what are the four or five weirdest and most kind of surprising types of solidarity that you found in all the hundreds of different instances that you uncovered? Maybe not weirdest, but most beautiful is this 15 Portuguese language teachers that uh, Luxembourg asked the Portuguese to send them over to help um, restart the elementary schools in an orderly way in Luxembourg. That's something that um, I find very interesting. And also, when we uh, come back to Italy, I think it's quite striking to see that many frugal countries have delivered quite a huge amount of mask and medical equipment to Italy. So that is also solidarity kind of coming in a different form. I think that was something that was quite surprising for me in general to see the smaller member states uh, being very active, sending medical stuff around Then there was this hackathon in the Baltic states where they tried to come up with some digital solutions to the coronavirus crisis. And so just I encourage everybody to dive deeper into the data because it's all publicly available on our website. www.ecfr.eu slash solidarity tracker. So we got one thing left to do on this podcast which is our bookshelf segment so obviously the first thing you should look at is the solidarity tracker but our guests also recommend some other stuff to read Arturo what's on your bookshelf at the moment oh there are a lot of articles very interesting but mine is forget Hamilton this is Europe's Calon moment by Trevor Jackson on foreign policy magazine The article is a sort of counter-argument exercise because explain the need that a fiscal union involves not just common borrowing, but also common taxation, exactly as Charles-Alexandre de Calon, the controller general of the finance of France in the 18th century did. It's a very interesting economic history article. Great. Nacho, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? I've been finishing a paper on the special relationship between Helmut Kohl and Felipe González, working in the archives of the Felipe González Foundation. All the correspondence between Kohl and González is now public. And I also interviewed González for this. And I'm, I went back to Hort's Telschik memoirs on German reunification and to this very epic moment in which Telschik remembers that the night of the fall of the Berlin Wall, only Felipe González called to congratulate Helmut Kohl and to say, what can I do for you? The others were so scared of what was coming ahead. 
And Cole would later refer to this occasion by saying, I can count with the fingers of one hand how many people called that night. And there are still too many fingers on one hand and because only Felipe González called. <laughs> Fantastic. What an amazing story. And Jana, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Well, like every good German, I'm uh, mentally preparing for the German council presidency. I mean, already for ages now, but now it's really coming, 15 days and counting. And I'm rereading Simon Balmer and William Patterson, Germany and the European Union, Europe's Reluctant Hegemon. And I can really recommend it because it's a sober assessment of Germany's position in the EU, how we got here, if we are a hegemon or a semi-hegemon and all that stuff. And it really prepares you for the debates that are coming, I think. That sounds wonderful. So if you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please let your friends and colleagues and other acquaintances know about it by writing about it on your social media page or on ours. And above all, by heading straight to the platform that you use to download this on and giving us a five star rating and a positive review. We put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. And you can get the solidarity tracker at www.ecfr.eu slash solidarity tracker. But for now, from Jana Pulierin, Jose Ignacio Torreblanca and Arturo Varvelli, as well as myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Hapenthal and our editor today is Gabriele Volodskaita. <laughs>